Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I was uh, crying with a member of our community who had <clears throat> just suffered a horrible loss. This man had just gone through the death of his daughter. And as we were just sitting there quiet and crying, after there was a protracted silence, he, he blew his nose and then he looked up at me and he said something very haunting. He said, well, surely the universe has some plan for this. Now that was not the time or place to delve into his theology. I was just there to weep with a person who was rightly weeping. But it stuck in my craw. Our neighbor was very purposeful. He said, the universe has a plan. He didn't see God as in charge, not, not even humanity as in charge. Instead, some pantheistic, invisible universe is the moving force that this fellow was trusting. What leads a person to that conclusion? There's no, there's no reason behind it. There's no scripture that declares the sovereignty of the universe. Okay. Yes, there are some people who see Star Wars as holy writ, um, but they are very few in number, thank God, and further, they are insane or illogical. Right, AJ? Um, besides those nuts, what causes a sentient, intelligent adult human being to believe that the universe has plans? I couldn't figure it out. So later, I asked him about it over coffee. All right. He had coffee. I drank tea. Um, and I asked him why he had said what he said. And he laid out for me his thinking, which, which was actually very clear. Here's my summary, and I think this summary is faithful to his thought process. Here's what he said. There were three parts to his thesis. He said, God can't be sovereign because then he would be responsible for human hurt. That would make him bad. Better he not be God than be God and not good. Secondly, he said, I can't pretend that my pain isn't real. And the other people who do that with their pain, they're just playing make-believe. Thirdly, he said, an all-powerful, impersonal universe is the best answer. It doesn't have to answer to me because unlike God and people, it doesn't want a relationship with me. Now, before you wag your head at that admittedly flawed logic, I want you to think. What's the obvious driving force? That poor fellow devised such a system of thought because he wanted an answer. He wanted an answer to the pain of this life, pain that was brought by evil in the world, right? People want an answer to suffering, and we need to see how we can help them. Look, look in your notes. Um, if you're online, we are so pleased to be with you. Uh, your host has shown you, given you a link where you can get to notes. You guys in here, open up your bulletin, and there are notes there in the middle. And we dive in with this headline, People Want an Answer to Suffering. Now, my neighbor adopted what I call a no-God approach. <clears throat> there is a serious problem with the no-God approach. There are many, but let me just pick one. Maybe the most serious problem is the no-God approach destroys humanity. Open your Bible to Psalm 8. Psalms, it's near the oh, first, last of the first third of your Bible. David in Psalm 8 is thinking. He's thinking about God. He's thinking about humanity. And he says this in verses 3 through 5. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, he's speaking to Yahweh. What is a human being that you remember him? a son of man that you look after him. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. 
Notice, humanity finds its very meaning in God's creation. If the universe, heaven, moon, stars, if, if it's making plans, then humanity's nothing. David is, in fact, he's rightly daunted considering a human being in light of the majesty of the spheres of space. But David understands there is a God who is creator. He is the prime mover, and that confers honor on human beings and nobility on our suffering. It is intellectual piracy to call human beings glorious if there is only a material universe and no creator God. It is intellectual piracy. It is absolutely illogical. Rebecca McLaughlin exposes the dehumanization that is inevitable if there is no God. I put this quote in your notes. She says in her book, Confronting Christianity, the materialist view of the universe erodes the foundations on which we balance life and humanness itself. If there is no good and evil, why do we lament? It's a great question. Why is that guy even crying if there's no such thing as right and wrong? If our sympathy for others is just a byproduct of evolutionary kinship, then why empathize with the suffering of those outside our tribe? And we do. Why? Removing God, Rebecca says, from the equation of suffering does not solve the riddle. Rather, it unravels our very self. Close quote. A generation ago, the rock group Rush released a song that shows, I think it shows very well what happens with the no God approach. Uh, Neil Peart, a drummer for that group, he wrote a powerful poem called Free Will. Look what he said. You can't pray for a place in heaven's unearthly estate. Each of us, a cell of awareness, imperfect and incomplete, genetic blends with uncertain ends on a fortune hunt that's far too fleet. Close quote. Mr. Peart does away with God, and he is left with an empty, short, incomplete view of humanity. That's a problem. Look again at my neighbor's logic. I want you to read his second point. I can't pretend my pain isn't real, and others who do so are playing make-believe. Wonderfully, he recognized that the no-suffering approach is also impossible. The no-God approach has serious problems. The no-suffering approach is also impossible. It was first tried um, in, in seriousness about around the 4th century, turn of the 5th to the 4th century BC. There was a guy named Siddhartha Gautama. He was a prince in an area that we now call India. Um, his dad was given a prophecy that scared the bejeebers out of dad. And so because of this prophecy, we don't have to worry about what the prophecy is. Dad decided that he was going to make sure his son, Siddhartha, never experienced any pain or suffering. He was never going to look on evil of any kind. And you thought overprotective parenting was something new, didn't you? Um, but this helicopter lawnmower parent, it, just as it does now, his parenting then failed. The prince eventually witnessed sickness and pain and, and even death. In response, Siddhartha developed a new religion. It was later uh, named Buddhism after one of his exalted titles, the Buddha. The bottom line of Buddhism is to reach the enlightenment of something called nirvana. Does anybody here know what nirvana means? What, is the, what does it mean? Nothingness, right? Nothing. Picture nothing. No, not black. Black's a color. That's something. Picture nothing. Can't do it, can you? That's because it's absurd, all right? Nirvana is not a dimensional place. It's not like you hear in Western advertisements where, oh, let's achieve nirvana. It's not heaven. It's not a dimensional place. It is no place. It is nothingness. And Buddha said that nothingness is the only way to avoid the reach of suffering. 
Now, that, I know it's absurd. That train of thought is insufferable in every meaning of the term. Look at Isaiah's poetic summary here. We all growl like bears. This is from Isaiah 59. We all growl like bears and moan like doves. Here between the Garden of Eden and heaven, all human beings suffer and moan. It is inevitable. And anyone who says differently is selling something. Just consider Siddhartha. You know what's the saddest part of his story, I think? He became just like his father. He really did. That's why he just became his father. He, he tried to hide all the realistic bad news of life. In fact, he was even worse than his dad because, because Buddha's nirvana actually demands a detachment from all reality. Uh, Jonathan Haidt is an atheist uh, Jew. I quoted him last week in this series. Um, I'm going to quote a different of his works. This one's called The Happiness Hypothesis. Um, he said this about the no-suffering approach to life. Haidt said, when I began writing this book, I thought that Buddha would be right. His diagnosis of the futility of striving felt so right, the promise of tranquility so alluring. But in doing research for the book, I began to think that Buddhism might be an error. Research proves that even people in painful situations tend to live meaningful lives. Instead of limiting suffering, non-attachment, he's talking about nirvana, detachment from reality, seems to deprive us of meaning. Just as plants need sun, water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and a connection to something larger, close quote. Now, I do see some problems with that book, but hate is correct here. The no-suffering approach is insufferable. It is literally nonsensical. And like the no-God approach, it reduces humanity to nothing. One more time, I want you to look at my friend's thesis. Um, look at his third point. An all-powerful, impersonal universe is, best, is the best answer. It doesn't have to answer to me because unlike God and people, it doesn't want a relationship with me. He decided the pantheistic force was the best solution. Now, when we were having tea, I shared with him that I thought that was flawed because I said, you have left out a really significant truth. He said, what's that? I said, you've left out God suffers. God suffers. And he suffers for us. And that is the biblical solution, by the way. God suffers. This is the approach that makes the most sense. For example, look up here. Luke chapter two, uh, 22, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prays this to the Father. Father, if you are willing, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now, when Jesus prays this in Gethsemane, he uses the term cup on purpose. You see, the Old Testament prophets used the image of a wine cup to represent the wrath of God, the price that has to be paid for evil in the world. Jesus, preparing to die on the cross, is stating his submission to the Father. Jesus is fully God, just as the Father and the Spirit are. Jesus, though, is fully human as well. More on that in a moment. And as a human, Jesus is in agony. He is literally sweating blood. As God, he is willing to suffer and drink the cup of wrath that must be downed. It has to be paid to remove sin and suffering. And here's the answer to human suffering. Not that God is absent or not God. Not that suffering is an illusion to overcome by detachment from reality. The answer to suffering is God suffers for humans. As Jesus hung on the cross... One of the thieves that was crucified with him, there were two thieves, one on each side of him. One of them said this, Luke 23, we are punished justly, talking about the thieves, because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. But this man, looking at Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he, Jesus, said to him, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now, in the beginning of the proceedings, that thief was mocking Jesus just like the other one was. They were both picking on him. But a cross is a painful teacher. And the severity of suffering dawned on this guy as he hung there. And he realized something amazing. He realized that because of what Jesus did, the Old Testament promises were were coming true. And someone who trusts Messiah as Jesus, that person is granted a pain-free, perfect eternity. Because Jesus suffered, believers in Christ have an immediate terminus for their own human suffering. People need an answer to suffering. Let's revisit my neighbor's analysis one more time. There's a There's a problem with his reasoning in the very first bullet point. Let's go back to that one. God can't be sovereign, he said, because then he would be responsible for human hurt. That would make him bad. Better he be God, uh, better he not be God than be God and not good. So more than just suffering, I think that points out that people want an answer to the presence of evil in the world. In that first point, by the way, my neighbor He didn't know this, but he's following the thinking of two really, really sharp, famous thinkers. One is an old German named Gottfried Leibniz, and the other was a 20th century uh, American philosopher, J.L. Mackey. Uh, The bottom line of Leibniz and Mackey's reasoning is that Christianity, what, what you people practice, it promotes a hateful God. If there is suffering and God doesn't stop it, then he is de facto mean. He's mean. We examine this in depth on the right side of your notes. Look on the right side of your notes. There's a few aspects to it. First, the standard reasoning that God is hateful makes mankind the measure of morality. And that's a big problem. There was a philosopher named Alan Plantinga. He, he showed this definitively in his book, God, Freedom, and Evil. Here's what he did. Look at this. Plantinga took Mackey's thesis that God can't be good, and he summarized it this way. This is a, this is a good summary of Mackey's and Leibniz's thesis. Here's the four parts that prove God can't be good. Number one, God is omniscient, knows everything. Number two, God is omnipotent. He has all the power possible. Number three, he's omnibenevolent. He's he's morally perfect, always doing good. Number four, there's evil in the world. That's a problem. Now, Plantinga, in his book, just laid those out and gave those fair treatment, and then he just asked one question. Why? He said, why does the presence of evil mean that God can't be good? Why? He then went on to show that the only reason we assume evil means God isn't good is that we have defined good as getting what we want. Uh Uh-huh, I know. Now, I don't think Plantinga's work is perfect, but he's correct in this. Making mankind the measure of morality is a paltry way to prove that God isn't good. By the way, to his credit, and he deserves a lot of credit for it, Mackey read Plantinga's book and then publicly wrote this, and I quote, he is correct. Mankind as a measure of morality is implied in my proof, and it cannot be used to declare that God isn't good. Close quote. By the way, the psalmist was way ahead of Plantinga. Psalm 2, if you'll turn there, you're in Psalm 8 right now. Turn back like six pages in your Bible to Psalm 2. There's a further observation here. We we humans, here's what the psalmist saw. This is really deep and wise. The reason we use humanity as our moral compass is deep down, we want to worship people. 
We do. We want to worship humanity. Look, Psalm, Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, that's the Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage against God declaring that he isn't good? Because we want to be our own gods. That's why the God isn't good approach always ends up worshiping humanity. Always. Any time in history you see a people group adopt the God isn't good approach, they will always end up worshiping humanity. Now, no one was ever quite as bold or bald about it as, uh, as this lady, the popular 20th century writer Ayn Rand. Um, she uh, wrote an introduction, a new introduction to her uh, popular book, The Fountainhead. The 25th anniversary of The Fountainhead, she wrote this in the introduction. Man's emotions must be redeemed from the murk of mysticism and redirected at its proper object, man. It is in this sense, with this meaning and intention, that I would identify the sense of life dramatized in the fountainhead as man worship. The Bible shows the outcome of this commitment to man worship. Psalm 106, verse 36, they served their idols, which became a what to them, everyone? A snare. It's a trap. Worshiping humanity, whether you worship humanity in the mirror, which most of us do, or you worship it on a silver screen, as a carved image, as an abstract concept, it is a trap from which logic and souls cannot escape. Now, I think today, in the particular moment in which you and I live, I think man worship is most often summarized in a very popular three-word sentence. In fact, this may be the most popular three-word sentence at this particular moment in time. The sentence is, you do you. Now, sometimes, sometimes that's fine. The phrase can be used as an encouragement for somebody to live out their own strengths, to, to enjoy their uniquely created self, and that's great. But often, especially in atheism, the statement, you do you, is about human worship. It's really about self-idolatry. Here's what it really means. When somebody says, you do you, this is often what they mean today. Don't you let anyone or anything reason you out of doing whatever you desire. You do what you want because you are the arbiter of what is good. Close quote. The rich irony is that man worships actually a religion. Something that the atheist Ayn Rand inadvertently admitted in her book. I don't think she ever realized what she had in her own book. Um, Howard Roark is the hero of the Fountainhead. He's the, he's the protagonist, the, the great committed atheist. Um, he's an architect. And a lady says to him at one point in the book, she says, You're a profoundly religious man, Mr. Roark, in your own way. I can see that in your buildings. That's true, said Roark. <laughs> Roark was religious, but his religion is that of Babel human worship. God isn't good enough, so we're going to build our own skyscrapers to reach beyond Him. Now, there are other ways that people try to deal with the problem of evil, but I only have time for one more. Here's something that you increasingly will face as you try to share God's love. In, in this day and time, you're going to increasingly face this problem. People are going to tell you they don't need God's salvation because there's no such thing as evil from which to be saved. This is one of the most intriguing responses to the problem of evil. We declare there's no such thing. This is how some people try to solve the problem. Um, it's, it's similar to the Buddhist approach to pain. 
You, you say evil is just a mirage. It is a perspective from which you need to, to change. You just need to escape. You, you need to stop looking at it or speaking it or hearing it, and the mirage goes away. Again, the rock band Rush weighed in on this part, too. Neil Peart's poem, Free Will, look what he said. You can choose a ready guide in some celestial voice. If you choose not to decide, you still have made a choice. You can choose from phantom fears and kindness that can kill. I will choose a path that's clear. I will choose free will. You see, your fears about evil, those are just phantom. They're not real. Doesn't that sound nice? Many Greek philosophers thought so. Some people do so today. Now, according to this approach, the clear path is there is no right and wrong. We solve the problem of evil by declaring that each person has free will to choose their own right and wrong. They solve it by their own choice. You choose what's right. A century ago, the occultist Alistair Crowley put it this way, there is no grace, there is no guilt, this is the law, do what thou wilt. But if there's no right and wrong, if there's absolutely no such thing as right and wrong, then, then this is acceptable, right? This is fine. I can walk over here to my friend and I can just take his notebook, right? I just stole a child's notebook. Is that evil? No, I choose free will. Besides, I probably need it more than he does. He's entitled. Look at that. He's got brothers and a mom. I'm a poor American Indian kid who was the first member of his family to ever go to college. And he's white. Actually, he's kind of dark looking. He's already been in the sun. You, here, that's awful, isn't it? Give, it? give him a hand, please, for letting me steal his notebook. Right? That, that's terrible. But that is the inevitable end result of the, of the thought that there's no such thing as right and wrong. That's the foolishness that ensues, which is why Proverbs 12, 15 tells us this. Read it with me. Everybody, line by line. Proverbs 12, 15. A fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. Rebecca McLaughlin writes a chilling summary of the problems with the, uh, the there's no such thing as evil approach. Look what she says. If there's no moral agency of evil, then no act of moral courage is real either. If the ISIS judge who held Nadia Murad as a sex slave, raping and abusing her night after night, cannot be judged for his actions, neither can Harriet Tubman be commended for her courage as she risked her life night after night to help black slaves go free. If Larry Nasser, the U.S. National Gymnastics team doctor who's serving multiple life sentences for sexually abusing more than 250 young girls, cannot be held accountable for his callous crimes, then neither does Rachel Den Hollander, the first woman to accuse him, truly love her children. In summary, both the there is no evil and the humans define morality, both those approaches are irredeemably absurd. So let's consider the scriptural answer. Here's the biblical solution. God is. Turn your Bible to Isaiah 45. You're in Psalms right now. Go five books to the right. One, two, three, four books to the right. Sorry. Don't go to Jer Jeremiah's right out. Go to... Um, <clears throat> Go to Isaiah chapter 45, and we're going to read verses 20 through 24. What, what we're going to read is a remarkably comprehensive answer to the problem of evil. And here it is. Come, God speaks, come, gather together and approach, you fugitives of the nations. Those who carry their wooden idols and pray to a God who cannot save, have no knowledge. Speak up, present your case. Yes, let them consult together. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? 
Was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me, righteousness and strength are found only in the Lord. All who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Like I said, this passage gives a remarkably comprehensive answer to the problem of evil. And it unfolds in stages. The first stage is where God calls out fugitives from reason. God calls people to reason with him. You see it? To think. Isn't that amazing? No other deity ever does that. The Lord says, come on over, let's have a little chat, right? Now, of course, part of God's communication here is pointedly sarcastic. I mean, he points out the absurdity of idolatry. Idols cannot speak, and thus they do fairly poorly in conversations with Yahweh, the the covenant Lord who speaks. The God of all is begging people to come to his word and reason. You fugitives who have been taught that humans should define morality, you displaced persons who believe that there's no such thing as evil or good, come to the Lord's words. Let's think this through. At a Veritas forum a few years ago, uh, Harvard professor Tyler Vanderveel called modern fugitives from reason with a really good statement. He said this, any educated person should at some point have critically examined the claims for Christianity and she'll be able to explain why he or she does or does not believe them. Close quote. A woman from our church added this, great letter to me, she added this. She said, Wayne, real truths are not often sought after in a world filled with sound bites and fake news. But since we are a church whose mission is to do the Great Commission, maybe we can grow into a church that produces strong reasoners, people who show from Scripture that God is and he rewards those who seek him through faith in Jesus. Amen? God is, and he opens his word to fugitives from reason. Secondly, God predicts perfectly. Look at the next part of verse 21 again. Who predicted this long ago? Who announced it from ancient times? Was it not I, the Lord? Scripture is true. The predictive passages in in the Bible are staggering, and every one of those prophecies has come true. I I, I just picked a few geographic examples. These were literally just off the top of my head. Um, Here's one. God promised that Simeon and Levi would never possess territory in Israel. Uh, That's what he prophesied. And hundreds of years later, that's exactly what came true. Simeon was absorbed by Judah, never had a, a territory of their own, and Levi was scattered throughout all the tribes. God said... Long before there was such a thing as as the Medes and Persians, God said, there is a guy by name, called him by name, Cyrus, and he is going to be my, uh, my guy. He is going to be my servant who sends my people back into their homeland to retake possession of Israel. Guess what? That's exactly what happened. Except the only part God didn't add is that he would later be called by humans Cyrus the Great. He nailed it even to the name. Here's another one. Uh, Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God said the anointed, the Messiah, would be born in the little tiny hamlet of Bethlehem. And that is exactly how it happened. Now, of course, that brings up a question. I know you're asking it in your your Neil Peart uh, voice. Um, How do God's perfect predictions help me with the problem of evil? Great. Thank you, Neil, for asking. Uh, He had had a great voice. He really did. Let me answer you with a question. The question is, how do God's perfect predictions help me with the problem of evil? Let me answer that with a question. If I prove to you 
that I can hit a tiny bullseye repeatedly. I can hit that tiny bullseye. Are you confident that I could responsibly then hit the much larger target? Yes or no? Yeah, if I can hit the bullseye, if I'm hitting that every time, I can surely hit the larger target. All right. In the same way, God predicts such specificity, such tiny targets, Bethlehem, Cyrus. If he can do that, surely he can be trusted with, with having a plan for the much larger issue of evil. And only God can satisfactorily deal with evil because God alone is Lord. Go, go on with verse 21. There is no other God but me, a righteous God and Savior. There is no one except me. The argument that humans should define morality is horrifying, even as it's hilarious. How do humans know what's right? The truth is we make horrible gods. And the real God is necessary to handle evil because only he can recognize, define, and eliminate it. In, in his book, The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis pointed this out. He said, my argument against God, talking about before he became a Christian, was the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just unjust. A man does not call a line crooked unless he first has some idea of straight. What was I comparing the universe to when I called it unjust? Close quote. Lewis, like everyone else, got his idea of straight from God. He alone is righteous and defines right and wrong, straight and crooked. And all will deal with him in his glory. By myself I have sworn, verse 23, truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me. Every tongue will swear allegiance. It will be said about me. Righteousness and strength are found only in the Lord. All who are enraged against him will come to him and be put to shame. Again, I think McLaughlin deals with this brilliantly. I want you to listen to, to her summary and commentary. Um, <clears throat> she was, she's discussing at, at this point in the book, near the end of her book, she's discussing a, a classic story by uh, the great Russian writer Pushkin, uh, Yevgeny Onegin. Anybody here read Yevgeny Onegin? Come on. All right, you all have an assignment now. It's, it's, uh, it's beautiful poetry. You don't have to read it in Russian. Just read it in English translation. Um, really, it's a, a remarkable, remarkable story. Here, here's what McLaughlin says about it. In the classic Russian novel, Yevgeny Onegin, a jaded aristocrat, Onegin, meets an innocent young girl in the countryside. That girl, Tatiana, writes him a letter, offering him her love. Onegin does not reply. When they meet again, he turns her down. The letter was touching, he tells her, but he would soon grow bored of marriage to her. Years later, Ovgenigin, uh, Evgeny Onegin meets, uh, enters a St. Petersburg party and sees a stunningly beautiful woman. It's Tatiana. But now she's married. Onegin falls in love with her. He tries desperately to win her back, but Tatiana refuses him. Once that door was open, she offered him her love. Now it is shut. She says, for many of us, it's easy to reject Jesus now. Like Tatiana's letter to Onegin, his offer's touching. But we believe we'll be happier without such a commitment. We worry he'll cramp our style. So we move on with life and we leave him out in the spiritual countryside. One day, the Bible warns, we will see Jesus in all his glory, our eyes painfully open to his majesty. We will know in that moment that all our greatest treasures were nothing compared with him. And we will bitterly regret that decision, but it will be no more unfair than Tatiana's rejection of Onegin. 
If we accept Jesus now, we'll live with him forever in fullness of life. We cannot imagine if we reject him, he will one day reject us and we will be eternally devastated. Close quote. Pushkin's book that you're going to read, Yevgeny Onegin, is so good that uh, Tchaikovsky, one of, the, one of the great composers of all time, uh, he was very smitten with it. And he took, he took Pushkin's poetry and he made it into an opera. Uh, I'm going to play the entire opera for you now. Um, no, I'm not. Here's what I am going to play you. There's a point in, in his opera, Yevgeny Onegin, there's a point in his opera, and, and he captures this. By the way, Tchaikovsky is a believer in Christ, and he, he was doing more than just telling Pushkin's story. He was actually teaching Isaiah 45. This is the moment. I'm going to play for you. It's very short. This is the moment where, where Yevgeny sees Tatiana revealed in all her glory. Okay? Listen. It's not all harsh news. Remember, the, the one who accepts the love. So this part you're hearing right now, this is Tatiana dancing with her husband. See, they're dancing now. They're in the ball. She's come down the stairs, and they're dancing. There's the, there's the joy, the, the absolute beauty. That's great. Thank you. That moment of shock. When Jesus revealed his Messiah in all of his glory, it, it doesn't need to be negative because God will save anyone who will trust him. Go back to Isaiah 45. There is no other God but me, a righteous God and what, everybody? Savior. There's no one except me. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God. There is no other. God saves by becoming human. Jesus embraced all of what it means to be human, including suffering, so that he could be our redeemer and our great high priest to help us in our times of suffering. Here, read with me from the book of Hebrews, chapter 2. You join me on the underlined text. It was necessary for him, Jesus, to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. You see, the answer to suffering is God suffers. The answer to evil is God is. Verse 18, since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he is able to help us when we are being tested. We earlier referenced Larry Nasser and Rachel Din Hollander. I want you to listen to Rachel's testimony. This is at the Nasser trial. She says this, you spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, by the way, he was in the courtroom with a Bible to which he had referenced. Um, Larry, if you have read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things, as if good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, and requires faith, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you have done in all of its utter depravity and horror without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen in this courtroom today. The Bible you carry says it is better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you be thrown into a lake than for you to make even one child stumble and you have damaged hundreds. 
The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet, she said, because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray, Rachel said, that you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Close quote. The answer to pain is that God suffers for everyone, even wretches like Larry Nasser, even wretches like us. The answer to evil is that God is, and he conquers evil through the gospel of Jesus. He conquers evil even in our souls if we trust him. The world's got it all wrong. Christianity does not promote a hateful God. We hold forth the righteous God who, who loves undeserving people through his own sacrifice. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are and that you bless me as I come to you in my suffering, in my worry, in my hurt, in my fear, in my pain, because of the problem of pain, because of the reality of evil. And the only reasonable solution is right there, that you are God and you are Savior. You suffer for me. I don't deserve it. And I am very, very grateful. And Father, I pray for anyone, wherever they may be, who is studying with me today, that has never received that incredible gift. They have never trusted Jesus as Savior. I, I pray you bring them to you right now. Let them see that Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. He is fully God and he is fully human. He chose suffering, unbelievable suffering, to take the sin of the world on a cross. And he rose from the dead, conquering even death, so that if you trust him, you follow him and you have eternal life. If you've never done so, receive that right now. Rachel Den Hollander's right. You've got to start at the beginning. You've got, you got to be, Lord, just tell God, I am a sinner. I can't define morality. That is hilariously absurd. But you've defined morality, and I am crooked. I am wrong and I have done wrong. And thank God, just tell him thank you for sending Jesus because of my wrong. And confess that you, you believe on Jesus. You trust him. And you receive his offer of salvation.
If you're, if you're online, please say something to your host. If you're here in the auditorium, everybody else is still praying. Just raise your hand if you trusted Jesus as Savior. I want to rejoice with you. That's great. Father, thank you for these believers in Jesus, both new and old. What an honor to get to, to be with them. And I look forward to the day where we will all dance to Tchaikovsky. In Jesus' name, amen.